0: From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. Less than six weeks ago, he was riding high as the Democratic frontrunner. This morning, Bernie Sanders suspended his campaign. Though Joe Biden is the de facto nominee, he now has the challenge of attracting Sanders' most devoted and most progressive supporters. We'll look at the Biden-Trump matchup in this era of COVID-19. We reached out to singer-songwriter-movie composer Randy Newman to record a friendly reminder to listeners to stay home and to wash our hands. Randy wrote a song just for us. Before you hear it across the country, you'll hear its world premiere this hour on AirTalk. We'll get underway right after NPR News.
1: While we are winning the ideological battle, and while we are winning the support of so many young people and working people throughout the country, I have concluded that this battle for the Democratic nomination will not be successful. And so today, I am announcing the suspension of my campaign.
0: Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. With those words issued to supporters in an online address, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders announced the suspension of his presidential campaign. It was a relatively foregone conclusion that he was not going to be able to catch up to the big delegate lead that Joe Biden already had. The question is when would Sanders uh, see it as the most advantageous time to formally withdraw from the race? And he also made clear that he's looking forward to having influence in the convention coming up this summer. Uh, Sanders talked about uh, also that his supporters would be disappointed.
1: But as I see the crisis gripping the nation, exacerbated by a president unwilling or unable to provide any kind of credible leadership and the work that needs to be done to protect people in this most desperate hour, I cannot in good conscience continue to mount a campaign that cannot win and which would interfere with the important work required of all of us in this difficult hour.
0: Conspicuously absent were any words of praise for Joe Biden. Um, Sanders talked about the inevitability that Biden would be the nominee and talked about working with him on the progressive ideas that have been at the center of the Sanders candidacy.
1: I will stay on the ballot in all remaining states and continue to gather delegates. While Vice President Biden will be the nominee, we must continue working to assemble as many delegates as possible at the Democratic Convention where we will be able to exert significant influence over the party platform and other functions.
0: With us to talk about the significance of today's formal withdrawal from the race of Bernie Sanders is NPR senior editor and correspondent on the Washington desk, Ron Elving. Ron, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Good to be with you, Larry. Uh,
0: your sense of the the timing of Sanders' announcement, what's behind it?
2: Slightly surprising, I think, to some people. They were not expecting it this soon. They thought he would hang in, and indeed he is hanging in as a name on the ballot, uh, into June, and he certainly did that in 2016, even when there was no clear path for him to be the nominee. So surprising to some people that he would pull out now. But let's think about two things. First of all, yesterday, the Wisconsin event. Wisconsin was just about his best state in 2016. He won big time, double digits over Hillary Clinton in Wisconsin. Yesterday, while we don't have the results yet, uh, was clearly not going to be that kind of day for him. But he was hoping that maybe there would be some sort of redemption. And uh, perhaps that could be a good time for him to get more active in his campaign. So they may very well have scheduled this advance in their minds to be the day after the Wisconsin primary. And then we get to the terrible situation that they've had there in Wisconsin with courts telling them they must vote in the midst of the coronavirus crisis and the legislature refusing to do anything about it. So that was not going to be an occasion for a turnaround for the Sanders campaign, and he has been trailing in the polls there anyway. So they decided this was the day to make the point. I'm quite glad that you played that last bit of tape that you played because he will remain on the ballot he will continue to get delegates he will continue to get votes people who believe in his mission his revolution will continue to show up in the remaining primaries not that they're going to win but that they're going to be heard from and that he will have delegates and that if we do have a live convention or if we have a virtual convention there will be delegates there for Bernie Sanders and his ideas and probably this is the best moment at which to make that mission the new mission for his campaign.
0: I'd love to hear from Bernie Sanders supporters. He, of course, won the California primary and quite handily over Joe Biden. Um, What you're looking for now and uh, whether you feel comfortable uh, falling in line uh, behind Joe Biden's candidacy, supporting him come November, or whether this sort of takes the air out of you uh, politically and uh, you're not particularly enthusiastic about the election come November. I'd like to hear uh, also what you're looking for from Joe Biden that would make him a more appealing candidate for you. 866- 893-KPECC 866- 893-5722 or the Air Talk page kpecc.org. We're already hearing from listeners. Dove in Beverly Woods says, I'm completely heartbroken. The only candidate I cared about and believed in was Bernie Sanders. I woke up to this news this morning and feel totally devastated. It's a really sad day. Uh, That's Dove writing on the AirTalk Facebook page. And um, that's going to be the challenge for Joe Biden. I mean, I think Dove's words beautifully lay out that challenge uh, for Biden. Uh, uh, Ron, how is he going to appeal to those folks?
2: He is going to have to probably wait some time There is not going to be a way to speak to Dove's disappointment and uh, perhaps disillusionment at this moment, and it's going to take some time for Sanders supporters, particularly his most fervid supporters, to really get their minds around what the choice is for November, and to see, and this is important, to see how the Democratic Party handles Bernie Sanders going forward? Will they simply dispose of him as someone who challenged the establishment and lost? Or will they incorporate the energy of his supporters and the ideology, the idea of democratic socialism and the idea of radical change? Will they incorporate those ideas into what the platform says and into what Joe Biden says? at the campaign level and at the convention level. If they do, then it's possible that even those who are most disappointed by Sanders' failure to beat Joe Biden in these primaries will see some chance for themselves to become more enthusiastic, or if not enthusiastic, at least resigned to what their choice is in November between Biden and and Donald Trump.
0: The the uh, difficulty, though, is imagining coming out of Joe Biden's mouth, words, substantive words, in favor of democratic socialism. We already know where Joe Biden stands um, on health care. Uh, His preference uh, very strongly stated in the debates for an expansion of Obamacare, looking to it as the signature accomplishment of the Obama administration, not favoring a Medicare for all single payer type plan. Um, And it's just it's hard to imagine what are those things that are central for Sanders supporters that Biden could authentically embrace.
2: It is difficult to imagine. And some of this is going to have to be accomplished through some bridges of language, some of it is going to have to be accomplished, perhaps by Barack Obama himself, who will now be free to come out and say, all right, now there is a Democratic candidate and it is Joe Biden and I am going to do everything I can to persuade people to see Joe Biden in positive terms. So that could happen. Another thing that could happen would be for Sanders to become much more enthusiastically and uh, aggressively supportive of Biden in the, the, the right moments, not necessarily tomorrow or next month. But uh, in the convention space, if that happens in August, and of course the Democrats have delayed their convention five weeks because of the virus, and then of course in the fall to get people out to vote who don't like Joe Biden. This is this is something Democrats have some difficulty doing. Voting for a candidate in November when they did not like that candidate in the primaries, when they did not like that candidate at the convention, and when they still don't like that candidate. Get them getting Democrats out to vote for that kind of of a nominee and Joe Biden will fit in that category for many. That has been a challenge to the party, and that is one of the reasons that they uh, they lose elections in such years as 2000, 2004, and 2016.
0: Jordan in Hollywood says, one thing Joe Biden could do that could get me uh, a little bit on board uh, would be for him to take a cognitive test. I think there are a lot of Sanders supporters uh, who are worried about Biden's apparent cognitive decline. Um, Jordan, I appreciate that. Um, I th- I think that's a very real issue Ron that people do see Joe Biden as being less sharp having declined having aged significantly since the last time around and um but I don't know how we could reassure people about that
2: That is a real challenge there is no question but that people perceive this and to what degree it is real it is going to be a problem for him As a candidate, it'll be a problem for him if he is president someday. So there are two things here. There's the reality of whether or not he actually is, you know, missing some things or has lost a step or whether this is more a matter of impression whether it is something that uh, does not affect his ability to actually perform either as a candidate or as a president. And whether that can be established by taking a cognitive test is debatable. One thing that's clear is that if you take a test, you have to release the results. Of
0: right. It. Yeah. You can't bury it. Yeah,
2: exactly. So if that could be a double edged sword. That could be something that uh, killed a candidacy. I mean, look what it did to Elizabeth Warren to actually take a test to see how much actual Native American a dna she might have or how far that connection might go back in her past i heard it rather badly particularly in the native american community a lot of tribal people thought that uh, that that uh, test and taking that test and making that claim was uh, out of bounds for her now whether that was fair or not it doesn't really matter it was a bruise for her it gave an opportunity for the president to to mock her and so forth And uh, you don't want to have that sort of situation once the Democrats are down to just one candidate. Uh, They're going to need to rally around that one candidate or they're going to be looking at another four years of Donald Trump.
0: Monica in East Hollywood, good to have you with us. You're a Bernie Sanders supporter. Your thoughts about this morning's announcement?
3: I'm completely devastated. Um, I can't believe it. I feel like we needed Bernie now more than ever with everything that's happening in our world and the inequality that we have in our world. And I really felt like he was a candidate that could push us forward to new change. And um, I'm just completely heartbroken right now. And I know I can't in good conscience vote for Joe Biden. So I don't know what I'm going to do now.
0: Yeah. So you, you may sit out the election?
3: I mean, I don't want to and I don't want to Trump to get reelected. But I don't really I don't believe in Joe Biden. I think he's he has a lot of questionable things um, that are not okay, And I just feel like this was the worst time for Bernie to drop out of the race.
0: And, uh, Monica, what was the most important um, thing on which Bernie Sanders was running the most important issue for you personally?
3: Health care. Definitely. I'm an uninsured single mom. I'm Latina. And I'm a yoga teacher that's now out of work. And also just how he spoke about social justice and um, equality. And I really felt like our movement, like people of color and young people, even my 17-year-old was going to vote for him, who's about, who was going to turn 18 three days before the election. So he was really excited to vote for the first time for Bernie. And it's just so devastating.
0: So it it sounds like you make too much money to qualify for um, Medi-Cal. If there were higher supplements to purchase insurance through the insurance exchange, if Joe Biden was able to, uh, that's something that he's touted, would that appeal to you?
3: I mean, definitely. I think I would rather be insured than not insured. And if that's something, You know, I think there's just he's going to really need to work really hard to get folks to vote for him, um, especially people of color.
0: Monica, I appreciate your call. 866-893-KPECC. Now, certainly African-American voters. um, I I think it's it's fair to credit them with the turnaround in the race.
2: Particularly, Larry, particularly African-American women and particularly African-American women over the age of 30. Among people under 30, Bernie Sanders was doing fine among African-Americans, doing almost as well as he was among uh, non-people of color under 30. So that, that, uh, that wasn't where the problem lay for Bernie. Where, where the problem was was with older African-Americans and particularly women. And that is a, a constituency that was so strong for Biden in South Carolina that it took what might have been a modest win and brought it up to the level of landslide. And when you then applied that same dynamic, in alabama and virginia and north carolina uh that really gave biden a huge leg up on super tuesday and we saw similar we saw similar situations in some of these other states so while i do understand and i can feel and remember feeling myself personally the kind of devastation that voters have on the day that their favorite candidate particularly a mission candidate a a, a candidate with a, a real revolution in mind, with the kind of radical fundamental change that Bernie Sanders is talking about. When that kind of candidate goes down, there is something that dies inside people, particularly young people, what brought them into the political realm in the first place, and something just gets extinguished at a moment like this. And so I completely understand how people are having that feeling today.
0: All right, let's take a, another listener call. Max in Culver City. Uh, you're a Bernie Sanders supporter. What what would Joe Biden need to do for you to go out and vote for him in November?
4: Yeah, and thanks so much for taking my call. Um, I don't think that there's anything that Joe Biden needs to do. I really think that the Democratic Party needs to understand that it's him or Trump and needs to rally behind Joe Biden in this time, I'm very upset that Bernie dropped out, but I think that we need to rally behind a unified candidate in order to beat Donald Trump.
0: All right. I appreciate it, Max. 866 893 KPECC. The sentiment you expressed is certainly what the Democratic Party is hoping for. One of the factors I want to ask uh, Ron about when we continue is how the conventions factor into this. It's not certain at this point there will be traditional in person conventions uh, either in uh, Wisconsin or in Florida. So if it's a virtual convention, is there any opportunity? for uh, the candidates to get a springboard out of that. We're at 866-893-KPECC. We're talking with Bernie Sanders, supporters on AirTalk, about how they're looking at November in the general election. I just want to alert you that you know KPCC asked Grammy, Emmy, Oscar-winning artist Randy Newman to do a social distancing message for our audience, but he went one step further He wrote a song about it, and I'll have the premiere of that song, world premiere, from Randy Newman, KPCC and AirTalk listener, coming up at 10.30. We're just nine minutes away. Back in one minute, we'll continue with Ron Elving of NPR on AirTalk. We're talking with supporters of Bernie Sanders, who officially suspended his candidacy this morning. We're talking with NPR's Ron Elving, senior editor and correspondent from Washington. And we're taking listener calls 866 866 893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. So, Ron, we don't know what the conventions are going to be like coming up this August. The Democrats have already backed theirs up to the week preceding the GOP convention. But let's say there isn't a traditional uh, delegates in in-person attendance conventions. Is there any kind of a bump that the parties can get out of them?
2: Probably a lot less. The idea of everyone watching, or many, many people watching at least, uh, a acceptance speech by a new nominee or a re-nominated nominee, is uh, is a part of our political tradition, and it has often, not always, but often produced a somewhat significant bump for that candidate. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush kind of went from being nowhere in the summer of. T- 1988 to being uh, the front runner and never lost that status the rest of the fall and won his one term in the presidency. So uh, it can really make a difference. It it was a big boon for Ronald Reagan. And I'm absolutely certain that Donald Trump is looking forward to having a triumphant moment, uh, no matter what else is happening in the country, because he seems to be able to be triumphant in the face of virtually anything. But uh, he will be Looking forward to having his moment in Charlotte, North Carolina, late in August, after the Democrats are already done and leading into the fall and um, proclaiming himself to have been the most successful first term president in American history. I think I can predict he will say that, uh, however, at odds with history and the facts that may be. So he's looking forward to that. The Republicans are going to have to deal with him. Expecting to do that in front of a big full hall. Remember, this is a president who thought we might all be able to go back to going to church, say, on Easter or having family gatherings for Seder. So uh, he is going to be hard to convince that the Republicans should not gather in person. The Democrats are already exploring the possibility of an online virtual convention or a smaller, smaller delegation size convention. Uh, that might be held in a in a more modest sized venue, but of course, still in Milwaukee and uh, still in that week of August.
0: Let's talk with Calvin in Long Beach. Good to have you with us on Air AirTalk. Uh, as a uh, uh, Bernie Sanders supporter, um, what would make you feel comfortable voting for Joe Biden?
3: Well, as
5: I stated earlier, and thank you for having me on. Yes.
0: I didn't hear what you said earlier, Calvin. Go right
2: ahead.
5: Oh, I said, well, thank you for allowing me to share this. If Biden selects Stacey Abrams as his running mate, that will take care of the issue of his cognitive disability, if he has one. That will bring him a lot of supporters, as that would have been for Bernie. Also, he'll have a candidate that's ready to hit the ground running, should he have this so-called cognitive problem. So I think that it's very important that he pick Uh, you know, a vice presidential candidate of color, a woman. And I think that will take care of that problem.
0: Calvin, I appreciate your call. Ron Elving, he's already committed that it will be a woman. Uh, Stacey Abrams, would she be on that short list, you expect?
2: Absolutely. Uh, Many people would consider her the first name on that short list, although obviously just as many would look to Kamala Harris. Uh, There are other African-American women who might be an excellent choice. Uh, there is also a lot of talk about Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan. She is uh, she is a Caucasian woman, but she is getting a lot of attention because the president has been singling her out and also because she is struggling with one of the hot spots of the coronavirus and doing everything that she can as a governor. Uh, there, there will be pressure for other candidates as well. Uh, Stacey Abrams from the state of Georgia uh, has not had a statewide office but came very close to winning the governorship there and was – Almost surely done out of it uh, by the skullduggery of her opponent, uh, who was also the state's uh, secretary of state at the time and was running the election and made it very, very difficult for many of Stacey Abrams voters, African-Americans in particular, to find a polling place and actually vote for her. So that's a whole other story, but that's part of the reason that Stacey Abrams is not a statewide office holder at this moment and a governor as we speak. Stacey Abrams is a highly attractive, highly dynamic, younger black woman. And she would provide a great deal of what Joe Biden might lack.
0: Gene messaged uh, on the AirTalk Facebook page, what if Joe Biden chose Elizabeth Warren as his running mate? Uh, Might that help those who might not vote at all to, as Gene puts it, grow up and vote responsibly. Um, Might that boost the turnout for Biden if Warren was chosen?
2: One has to think that that would be one of the best gestures that Biden could make to Sanders supporters, because while Sanders and and Elizabeth Warren do not always see eye to eye and, and and obviously we're rivals, uh, back this winter in the primaries. Uh, they share so many issue positions that really no one else would be closer to Bernie among all the women that, uh, that Biden might be looking at. Uh, not, that's not taking anything away from Kamala Harris's positions. Uh, she might very well be very satisfactory to many Sanders supporters, but no one would be closer to Bernie on a national scale uh, than Elizabeth Warren.
0: Maximum Isolation tweets at AirTalk, Biden really does not have the Latino vote. He may have split the persons of color vote, but he's got to do some serious outreach to Latinos. And the VP choice is going to have to be uh, to the left of Warren. Uh, I don't know who that would be. I wouldn't see AOC being a strong candidate. But, um, yeah, it's hard to imagine someone to the left of Warren that that would be a a fit with uh, Biden,
3: Ron?
2: It's a little hard to imagine a, a woman in the Democratic Party at this moment uh, who would be substantially to the left of Elizabeth Warren. Uh, but uh, but uh, that's not to say that that person doesn't exist, but just I'm having a little trouble coming up with the name. Uh, as far as AOC is concerned, of course, uh, I don't believe she's 35 years Yeah,
0: she's not old enough, right?
2: <laughs> and you have to be 35, according to the Constitution, because you have to meet all the constitutional requirements to be president, to be vice president.
0: Yeah. Ron, good to talk with you again, as always. Stay safe. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate it very much.
2: Thank you, Larry. I'm looking forward to Randy's song.
0: All right. Ron Elving, Washington Desk Correspondent, Senior Editor for NPR, joins us regularly to talk politics. In case you just tuned in, Bernie Sanders announcing this morning he's suspending his presidential campaign. Well, when KPCC reached out to Randy Newman to do a social distancing message Instead, he did what Randy Newman does best—he wrote a song about it, and it's making its world premiere right now on AirTalk on eighty-nine point
6: three. Hi, I'm Randy Newman, and I've been asked by KPCC to say some words about social distancing because my scientific background is apparently there's some disease that's going around. Uh, stay six feet away from people. Wash your hands. Uh, religiously and often, and uh, don't touch your face. And so I, I was asked to do this. I wrote a song uh, instead, actually. So, so I'll go play it for you. Venus in sweatpants, that's who you are. And when this mess is over, I'll buy you a car, and we'll drive that car. So fast and so far All your stupid friends will be left behind Stay away from me Baby, keep your distance, please Stay away from me Words of love in times like these 24 hours a day. A lot of people couldn't stand that, but you can. You'll be with me 24 hours a day. What a lucky man I am. Stay away from me. Wash your hands. Or don't touch your face. How you like that? Wash your hands your face, I saw you, 30 years together, we're still having fun, yeah. once we were two, now we are one, Squad, get a burger, you know when you're done, you're done, memories of the past, be kind to one another, tell her you love her every day, if you're angry about something, let it go. The kids are frightened, tell them not to be afraid. But don't let them touch your face. Don't let them touch your face. All right, thank you very much. I wish everyone well, and uh, I wish myself well to some extent. And uh, stay safe. It's hard uh, uh, for Americans to don't like being told what to do at all. But in this case, you know, let's do it. Yeah. We'll be all right. Okay, all my love to everybody. Bye. Singer,
0: songwriter, film composer, Randy Newman. Randy, thank you so much. That's my favorite public service announcement of all time, making its world premiere on AirTalk here on 89.3 KPCC. You heard it here first. What better way to be reminded of our best practices as we stay safe at home? It's AirTalk on 89.3 KPCC. Thank you, Randy. Each day during this era of COVID-19, we talk with a medical professional who will answer your questions about what we're learning on a daily basis about COVID-19. Our phone number today to talk with our physician guest is 866-893-KPCC, 866-893-5722, or the Airtalk page, kpcc.org. We welcome back Dr. Timothy Brewer, UCLA Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology. He's been a consultant for the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, as well as as for the uh, suddenly controversial World Health Organization. Dr. Brewer, good to have you back with us.
5: Thank you very much for having me.
0: I want to start with uh, President Trump's criticism of the World Health Organization, uh, criticism that they were late with important information about COVID-19 and previous criticism the president has made about catering to China by the organization. Uh, The head of the World Health Organization came out this morning and said, hey, don't politicize us. Uh, It's going to mean more people in body bags if you do your thoughts on on the back and forth.
5: So I I agree with the World Health Organization that this is not a productive use of our time, and really we need to be focusing on the problem and the solutions. Uh, It's very difficult. The World Health Organization is dependent on member states to provide it with information and resources, so it's it's very difficult for them to act independently of individual member states.
0: All right. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Dr. Brewer, we are seeing some numbers out of New York City, which has been the national hotbed for the novel coronavirus. Some numbers which indicate, based on hospital admissions, a bit of a plateauing there in COVID-19. Are are you seeing this as something, uh, a significant positive development, or you can That this could be just a
2: lull?
5: Well, I I think you're correct to focus on the trends rather than the day to day numbers because the day to day numbers will bump up and down uh, depending on how much testing is done and how quickly hospitals are reporting cases. I I think it's a little too early to know if the New York trends will hold. I think if you look at Italy, um, there are good data to show that the numbers are stabilizing and maybe even dropping in Italy. I'd I'd like to see a, a slightly longer trend in New York before we can know for sure what's happening there.
0: How do we effectively measure the degree to which staying at home, uh, wearing a facial coverings, um, slows or or stops the spread of COVID nineteen?
5: Yeah, and it's a wonderful question, and the short answer is extremely difficult to know. And and what we're doing is we're making inferences, which is because we can't randomize people to wearing masks or not wearing a mask and then actually measuring how much COVID-19 spread occurs, we have to make best guesses based on the available information. And at least looking around at other locations, California seems to be rising at a slower rate and we introduced stay-at-home orders earlier. So that's suggestive that the stay at home orders may be having some effect.
0: We're talking with epidemiologist, Professor Dr. Timothy Brewer of UCLA. We're at 866-893-KPECC or the Airtalk page, kpecc.org. We have listener questions that are coming in. I've got my list, as always, uh, to ask our guest. But he'll be with us through the rest of this hour here on Airtalk. I'm so excited about Randy Newman's uh, song that he wrote for us here at KPCC to remind all of us about Staying at home, keeping our hands away from our faces, and uh, also making sure that uh, we cover up. It's Air Talk on KPCC. We're back in just 90 seconds. It's AirTalk on 89.3 KPCC, our daily update from a medical authority about COVID-19. Today, it's UCLA's Dr. Timothy Brewer, professor of medicine and epidemiology. We're at 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page KPCC.org. We have a call from Derek in Mission Viejo who asks, We often hear about people going on ventilators in ICUs. What are the percentage that actually come off of them and survive uh, having to go to those lengths?
5: So if you look at all comers, about half of the people will eventually come off the ventilator, but that varies greatly by age. So even though anyone can get sick from COVID-19 and even seriously sick and end up in the hospital, individuals below the age of 50 are much more likely to recover than those over 65 and above. So so it does vary by age and underlying health uh, conditions, but if you take all comers, about a uh, little more than half of the people who go on ventilators will eventually recover and be able to come off the ventilators.
0: Uh, Hednick in Baldwin Hills Estates uh, asked, uh, could we reuse our rubber gloves by using hand sanitizer on the gloves It'd be a way to avoid waste?
5: Uh Terrific question. Um, the gloves are not actually designed, at least the ones we use in the hospital, for more than single use. But because of shortages, we are trying to figure out ways to, to re sanitize them. I think if you're talking about dish gloves at home, which are a much thicker rubber, you could probably just wash them in soap and water and that will be fine. Soap and water will disinfect, uh, will deactivate the virus. So either hand sanitizer or soap and water would be would be fine.
0: Uh, Lisa in Santa Monica with a similar question says, I have a very old N95 mask that can't be washed. If I spray alcohol on it at home, would that effectively disinfect it?
5: So the the purpose of wearing the mask is actually to prevent transmission of the infection. So the reason why we're now recommending cloth coverings is that some people will spread virus before they develop symptoms and the goal of the mask is really to catch the virus particles before they can get out and spread to to someone else so cleaning the outside is probably less helpful than cleaning the inside Um, it really depends on how old your mask is to whether or not the alcohol will lead to uh, breaking down the fibers in the mask.
0: The N95s, they do expire, don't they?
5: They do. And, and they're actually designed to be single use as well. So they're really not made to be uh, sterilized. But I know a number of hospitals are looking, because of the shortage, at ways to try and sterilize them and reuse them. Mainly, I think they're using ultraviolet light, though, rather than any kind of chemicals with the hope that the mass will not break down.
0: A skilled nursing facility in Riverside County, uh, where nearly three dozen residents are infected with COVID 19, is being evacuated. Staff members didn't show up to care for them today. Riverside County public health officials said 84 patients are being moved from the Magnolia Rehabilitation and Nursing Center in Riverside after employees didn't show up two days in a row. Uh, the county doesn't know why employees didn't report to work. No one at the facility has been reached by uh, the Associated Press uh, for comment. Five employees and 34 residents at the 90-bed facility have been found to have COVID-19. Yesterday, the Director of Public Health for Los Angeles County, uh, Barbara Ferrer, uh, said that it would be wholly appropriate for people to consider moving uh, their elder family members out of skilled nursing facilities over concerns about COVID-19 at those facilities. But Dr. Brewer, that seems to me to be a tremendous challenge for most families. If someone is ill enough to be receiving care at a skilled nursing facility, how many people are prepared to provide that level of care at home?
5: You're exactly right, Larry. It could be extremely difficult. And the second question is, are the homes even designed to to take care of the people. So, for example, my home is not handicap accessible and my father-in-law who's in an assisted living would be unable to access my home because he can't climb stairs reliably. So, so moving people out of assisted living or skilled nursing facilities is a is a major decision not to be taken lightly. And besides the risk of COVID nineteen, you have to consider mobility, access to meals, someone to provide the nursing care, all of the other things that happens in these facilities that may or may not happen in the home.
0: Craig in Riverside says, When and how is testing going to begin for those who are asymptomatic so they can return to the workforce?
5: So a great question, Craig. It's really gonna depend on our capacity to increase testing. And right now we have shortages at, at two ends. One is shortages of being able to do the tests and place to do the test, though that is improving every single day. But the second place we have shortages is actually the materials to run the tests, including the squads and the personal protective equipment that the healthcare workers need to wear in order to take a test on somebody. When that, will, that shortage will be relieved, I don't know. But I don't anticipate us moving to asymptomatic testing anytime soon
0: just want to mention that uh, coming up next hour, we're going to open up the phones for AirTalk listeners who have family members either in skilled nursing facilities or in assisted living facilities. Sometimes those are, are graduated facilities where part of it is for those who provide a little bit of assistance and others might need full nursing care. We're going to be talking with uh, listeners who have family members in such facilities and whether they are considering or already have brought those older family members home and some of the challenges and how that's worked out also the ways in which you're connecting with your family members who live in facilities like that when you can't enter because they can't allow members of the public or family members to come in and visit anymore at those facilities. So how are you connecting with those older family members? That's coming up next hour here on air talk here on 89.3 KPCC right now. We're talking with Dr. Timothy Brewer, UCLA epidemiologist, professor of medicine, uh, also consultant for both the World Health Organization and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Your questions for him about COVID-19 or about public health measures can be asked at 866-893-KPECC. That's 866-893-5722. Howie in South Los Angeles says, why are more minor symptoms not listed for the novel coronavirus? He's asking about runny nose, for example. Um, I thought uh, runny nose was not one of the symptoms of COVID-19.
5: So you're correct, Larry. Runny nose, per se, is relatively uncommon. So if you have someone who has sniffles, that's more likely to be a different virus. The Early symptoms of COVID-19 can include a dry cough. It can include trouble smelling or tasting, and it might be intermittent or low-grade fever. Sore throat has also been been reported. But in general, runny nose and sniffles is not a big part of COVID-19.
0: So, again, let's go over what are the symptoms that we really need to pay attention. Dry cough was one you mentioned.
5: Dry cough, fever, and the single most important symptom is trouble breathing or shortness of breath. If you have any trouble breathing or shortness of breath, please reach out immediately to your healthcare provider to find out should you be evaluated and seen. That's the most important one to
0: remember. We'll continue our conversation with Dr. Brewer who's joining us to take your questions about COVID-19 on Air Talk here on KPCC. We'll be back with more in just 1 minute. You're listening to Wear Talk on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle from a very quiet KPCC Moan Broadcast Center where almost everybody's working at home, sitting here, Uh, almost in the dark (laughs) with our senior producer Fiona Ng on site our news apprentices joining us Parker McDaniel our technical director as well and of course your phone calls and questions for our guest Dr. Timothy Brewer UCLA professor of medicine and epidemiology Margo in Ohio asks how uh, long is the effectiveness of hand sanitizer or sanitizer spray how often should we be using
5: So, uh, great question. You should use it any time you touch a surface that potentially might be contaminated. So once you've cleaned your hands, as long as you don't touch anything, the hands should remain clean. But if you touch a surface, if you go to the grocery store, if you're preparing food, uh, before eating. Those are times when you want to be washing your hands, either with soap and water or hand sanitizer.
0: All right. Uh, Buzz in Huntington Beach says, is there an estimate of minimum exposure someone has to have to get the virus?
5: So a uh, terrific question, Buzz. We know that um short contact can lead to transmission of the virus but we think that's uncommon in studies out of china where they looked at household contact so people who spent a lot of time in the same place with a sick person only about 14 percent of household contacts ended up getting infected themselves so we we think you need prolonged close contact but it clearly has happened with very brief short contact as well.
0: We have another ohio listener listening on KJA, I'm sorry, KJAI. So glad uh, to have uh, her with us as well, who uh, wants to uh, ask about a cold water usage uh, for uh, washing one's hands. Katie says, my water often isn't hot. Is cold water as effective or close enough?
5: Cold water is fine as long as you're using soap or detergent. So it's actually the soap and detergent that's helpful in addition to the water. So cold water would be okay with a, a soap or detergent.
0: Chad in Burbank says, I keep a solution of bleach and water in my car. I spray on my gloves and on groceries and boxes that I buy. Is that effective? Uh, He also microwaves a mask and wonders if that's an effective uh, way of sanitizing it.
5: So you probably don't have to do it, but bleach is an effective uh, disinfectant. Just be careful not to make it too strong or too concentrated. The virus does not survive long outside of uh, living cells. So just taking your, your produce and washing it will be fine or putting your boxes and cans in your pantry for a day or two will also probably clear out any virus that's there.
0: All right. 866-893-KPECC or the Air Talk page, kpecc.org. Stacy says, I live alone. I'm staying in place. I just go out for solo walks. Do I have to constantly disinfect and wash my hands?
5: Well, it, it's probably good to wash your hands, Stacy. just because while you're out walking, you may be touching things without realizing it. And that's really the value of washing your hands, is we don't always recognize when we're touching things that might be contaminated. So washing your hands when you come back is fine. You don't have to constantly be washing them while you're in your house, but after going to the washroom, before preparing food, before eating, those are reasonable times to wash your hands again.
0: I wanted to ask you about the uh, racial disparities on fatality rates. African-Americans have a significantly higher fatality rate uh, than members of other racial and ethnic groups. Um, this kind of played up by national media as though you know perhaps this is racism in some way. I would have expected African-Americans to have significantly higher rates, given what we had been ter- uh, told about um, causes uh, of fatalities in coronavirus links to smoking, type two diabetes, rates of asthma, obesity, uh, a number of other factors that that seem to play into this. So um To your knowledge, are there studies to try and and actually factor in these pre-existing conditions to determine what's going on in the fatality rates?
5: So uh, I'm not aware of any studies yet. But it's probably a combination of both structural inequalities that our sociology colleagues will tell us lead to worse health outcomes in in African-Americans, even in the absence of a pandemic and and the pandemic itself. So you are correct that there are higher rates of comorbidities or heart disease, hypertension and diabetes. African-Americans tend to live in poorer neighborhoods where there's more crowding and uh, it's a population percentage. They tend to have less access to health care. All of those things are going to aggravate the mortality rates in this underserved population.
0: (laughs) Larry in Long Beach says, can you have the virus without even knowing it? And Larry, with that question, tapping into one of the biggest concerns of public health officials. Dr. Brewer?
5: Yes. So, Larry, you can have the virus without knowing it. And more importantly, you can spread the virus without knowing that you have it. And that's why we're now encouraging people to use the the cloth mask in addition to maintaining the physical distance when they go out. Most people we believe will eventually get symptoms of some sort or another. But the vast majority, over 80 percent, will have mild or moderate symptoms.
0: And Renee asks a question about your field uh, of medicine. Renee asked, what exactly is epidemiology? How does someone enter the field? Does it require a medical degree? Um, epidemiologists right now seem to be the rock gods of medicine and public health. I think epidemiologists were key to overcoming the 1918 flu epidemic. Good question, Renee. What is an epidemiologist, Dr. Brewer?
5: So, Renee, epidemiology is the study of diseases and their causes. And so an epidemiologist is someone who works in the field of epidemiology. So they're looking to find out what causes diseases. For example, smoking causing lung cancer. You do not need a medical degree. Most epidemiologists are actually public health uh, degrees, not medical degrees. I just happen to have both.
2: All right.
0: I thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Brewer. We always appreciate your time and expertise in taking our listener questions.
5: Thank you very much for having me, Larry. Have a good day.
0: You too. UCLA professor of medicine and epidemiologist, Dr. Timothy Brewer, joining us on AirTalk. We have much to come in the second hour of the program. I mentioned before, we're going to talk with listeners who have family members who are in living facilities that might be at particular risk for spread of COVID-19. We'll talk about how we're considering dealing with that. Hardover estate the musical significance of singer-songwriter John Brine. that one of his most influential songs been covered by many great artists Angel from Montgomery so many other terrific songs uh, Sam Stone Hello in there he died yesterday of complications from COVID 19. John Bryan was 73 years of age. He died at Vanderbilt Medical Center in Nashville. Uh, he won a Lifetime Achievement Grammy Award earlier in the year. Uh, he was a musician who just so many artists, and not just country, but uh, pop, folk music, Prime, universally recognized as just a tremendous uh, songwriter, died yesterday at the age of 73 of complications of COVID 19. And we have another one of his songs, which will close out today's air talk with uh, more from John Prime. But joining us right now in our second hour of Air Talk is uh, Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff of Burbank, Glendale, parts of Pasadena and parts of Los Angeles. He chairs the House Intelligence Committee. You know him, of course, for uh, all of his uh, exposure from uh, the impeachment trial that took place or impeachment uh, hearings, I should say, in uh, the House uh, Intelligence Committee. Congressman Adam Schiff, good to have you with us again today on Air Talk.
7: Thanks, Larry. It's good to be with you.
0: First of all, can you give us a sense of what's going on with the business of the House, with uh, everybody doing physical distancing?
7: Well, we are doing daily conference calls. Uh, I just got off one with our Democratic caucus and the administration to uh, be able to directly pose questions to the administration about uh, the course of the pandemic response. Uh, But we're also working in committee to uh, get an intelligence uh, authorization act our yearly bill done notwithstanding the need to socially distance from each other we're exploring how we could do virtual hearings uh, we're doing telephone town halls with the constituents and webinars with small businesses in our districts uh, so we're trying to conduct uh, our business uh, given these rather extraordinary circumstances uh, and get ready for the next relief package uh, that is already beginning to take shape in Congress
0: yeah and what what is that uh... This success or relief package looking like? Um, particularly, I know small business is one of the focal points. Can you describe what the proposals are?
7: Yes. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of common ground around the need to expand the small business program, the Paycheck Protection Program that allows small businesses to get forgivable loans uh, so that they can retain their workforce, pay their rent, pay their utilities. Um, The SBA is obviously struggling to ramp up this program overnight. Uh, There are problems that small businesses are having getting access to these loans through their banks. Uh, I just worked on trying to address a particular problem that constituent businesses have that are customers of Wells Fargo, given the constraints that were uh, placed on Wells Fargo for good good reason after all of its uh, problems uh, in terms of abuses of consumers. But nonetheless, we don't want small businesses that are their customers to have to suffer right now. So there'll be more money for the small business program. Uh, Frankly, I would like to see, and and I don't know that uh, I'm going to succeed with this, but I've always favored the approach that uh, Britain and some other countries in Europe are taking uh, of guaranteeing all payroll right now or 80% of payroll. It would really simplify what the federal government is doing. It would not permit the picking winners and losers uh, among businesses or industry. Um, but uh, I think uh, the, the biggest piece of that is the small business piece, and we are going to expand that. I'm hoping that we'll also have more relief for health care providers uh, to make sure they have the protective gear that they need and that our hospitals can withstand the financial uh, crisis that they're going to experience without more help, more help to the states, more help to our homeless population. Uh, these are definitely some of the priorities that I'll be pushing for in the next bill.
0: What's the role of the Fed in this?
7: Uh, the Fed has, you know, has a very important role to play uh, in terms of trying to maintain some stability in the financial markets. Uh, obviously, they've done what they can in terms of uh, lowering interest rates, and they're about as low without going to negative interest rates as they could be. But for example, this relief on Wells Fargo—that um, was the constraints placed on Wells Fargo were were placed by the Fed. In fact, I asked a former chair. Uh, Yellen about that yesterday because I was hearing from businesses that were impacted by this uh, and I wrote to the Fed along with uh, Mike Thompson and a couple of my colleagues to urge that the Fed take quick action so that the small business customers of Wells Fargo wouldn't be suffering uh, and they did today and so as a result of that Wells Fargo should be able to expand uh, its participation on behalf of its small business customers uh, but only for that reason. Uh, otherwise, the constraints that were put in place will remain. Uh, so the Fed has an important role here, but uh, they, in terms of monetary policy, have gone about as far as they can go. And what, what is really needed now is a more fulsome response by the federal government to make sure that the healthcare care system can survive this, but that also individuals and uh, small businesses uh, can make payroll and, and pay their bills.
0: We're talking with Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff of Burbank, Glendale, Pasadena, and part of Los Angeles. If you have questions for him, you can post them on our AirTalk page, kpcc.org. You can also uh, tweet at AirTalk or post on the AirTalk Facebook page. your thoughts about Bernie Sanders suspending his presidential campaign today and the challenge for Joe Biden, the presumptive nominee, in attracting uh, those who are most loyal to Sanders?
7: I think it's going to require vigorous outreach by uh, by Joe Biden, by the Biden campaign, uh, to bring on board those passionate supporters of Bernie Sanders. And, and it will require... Uh, Bernie Sanders to make a full throated uh, uh, expression of support for Joe Biden, really urge and engage uh, his supporters. Uh, you know, I think for many of us in the Democratic Party, this is an existential challenge. Uh, the damage this president has done to the health of our democracy and now literally the health of our country and, it, it, and uh, its citizens uh, means that we can't go through another four years of this. And so. I, the, the Democratic Party, I think, feels the imperative of coming together as one, and we're going to require, I think, a sustained effort among all of our leadership, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and everyone else that ran for president or has future aspirations of running for, for president to to unite uh, in the service of this common goal. You know, the, the other thing I want to add on this point, Larry, is the Republicans from the president on down are making a concerted effort to suppress the vote. Uh, We saw that, I think, in in Wisconsin's determination to uh, conduct the election and force people to choose between their health and their franchise. We see it with the president's open hostility to voting by mail, something that he is proud to do himself, but realizes is a threat to the Republican Party because when Americans vote, Republicans lose. Uh, and they don't want uh, greater numbers of Americans voting. Their whole political business model is built on fewer Americans voting and particularly disenfranchising communities of color. So uh, to meet those issues head on, we need a unified Democratic.
0: Were, were you concerned, though, that when the legislature in Wisconsin um, didn't act to delay the election, that the governor unilaterally tried to do that? Because, you know, for example, if if we're talking a federal election and Congress didn't postpone an election, but then President Trump said, oh, we're going to postpone the election, I assume you and your, your colleagues would be up in arms about that. So was that appropriate for uh, the Democratic governor of Wisconsin to try and do that?
7: I think given the emergency that Wisconsin was facing, uh, that the governor uh, did what he could to uh, try to not force his citizens to make that awful choice between endangering or risking their health, uh, and, uh, otherwise sacrificing their franchise. So I think the you know, the unique circumstances that that his state was facing at that point in the pandemic curve, um, uh, you know, put him in that very difficult position, but we can't use that, um, uh, circumstance, um, This fall, because we have plenty of advance notice about this fall, Uh, we know that we need to take steps now to ensure that everyone has access to vote by mail, uh, that they have the opportunity to vote in person, but nonetheless, that there is provision uh, for everyone to vote by mail uh, in case the circumstances uh, warrant it. And so I don't think that anyone can uh, claim surprise when we get to the fall that this will be necessary. All right. Yes, uh, this president has made it abundantly clear that he will not avoid using any crisis for his political benefit, and and by trying to cast doubt – on the legitimacy of vote-by-mail, this is exactly what he's doing.
0: Uh, Let me uh, go back to the Small Business Administration loans. Brian in Koreatown says the SBA is telling me we've got to submit 2019 taxes, but those returns aren't due until September now. We haven't even started on them. So Brian wondering, well, how's he going to get the financial aid for his business when he doesn't have all that documentation? Uh, IRS has delayed the deadline.
7: You know, that should not be an issue, and and if it becomes an issue with the SBA, we're going to have to weigh in and make sure that they don't interpret the CARES Act in that way. We had a similar problem when – and you and I may have talked about this uh, earlier, Larry – when the Treasury Department misinterpreted the CARES Act to suggest that people had to file tax returns to get the stimulus checks. That was certainly not what Congress wrote in the CARES Act. And when we raised that issue, the Treasury Department quickly changed course. Uh, This aid needs to go out to small businesses ASAP, and we can't put artificial limitations or restrictions or onerous uh, filing requirements uh, when they need uh, this money to pay their employees now and to avoid having to lay them off or furlough them. Uh, We will be so much better off. The recovery will be so much quicker If companies, small businesses don't need to lay off their workers and those workers then need to file for unemployment, need to job search when we're on the other side of this curve, Uh, if they can retain their employment, even if they're not able to work uh, and retain their salary or most of it, that is so much better for them and for the economy. So, uh, you know, the SBA uh, is going to have to be nimble. Uh, and if there aren't requirements of the filing of tax returns they shouldn't interpret it that way Uh, and if there's legislative uh, remedies that are necessary they will be included in the next relief package that we hope to take up later this month.
0: We're talking with Congressman Adam Schiff of portions of Los Angeles, Burbank, Glendale and Pasadena, Democrat chairs, the House Judiciary Committee. I'm sorry, Intelligence Committee joining us on AirTalk. We're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. Uh, You have proposed, as have many colleagues in the House a uh, commission that would be established to review the federal government's response to COVID-19. One of the things that I think would be beneficial, if it's possible to do so, is to distinguish between the responsibilities of the feds and the responsibility of states. For example, in California, there had been a big stockpile amassed with previous budget surplus going back to 2006, uh, where mobile hospitals. Uh, ventilators had been stockpiled. You had N95 respirators, uh, 50 million of them, huge stockpile. And then the state decided, well, we can't afford to do that, even though this is something we should be prepared for. And the stockpile was, um, was depleted. So how much of this falls on the federal government? How much of it falls on a state like California to be prepared for a pandemic?
7: Well, that is exactly one of the purposes of this commission, which would uh, not get started until early next year. So we don't want its work to in any way interfere or become politicized before the election or interfere with a relief effort. But there is going to have to be a really objective look at how did the federal government handle this? How did state and local governments handle this? Um, what about the, the stockpile situation? You've got Jared Kushner speaking on behalf of the administration, and, and Lord knows why uh, he has any kind of management responsibility when he has no experience in this area, but saying that the national stockpile uh, doesn't belong to the states, uh, that essentially it's for the federal government. And uh, and no one could make heads or tails of what that meant, except that it was at odds With the federal government's own websites which were immediately changed after jared kushner's rather inane comments Uh, so you know the commission is going to have to look at how the federal government in a pandemic or a crisis like a pandemic uh, can play a uh, logistical role in making sure that states aren't competing with one another Uh, and we've heard, heard horror stories of you know california being on the phone ready to purchase an order of respiratory masks and then being outbid by the federal government. Uh, We're going to have the the federal government working at cross purposes with our states, let alone not coordinating with them. So uh, all of these issues should be examined by a commission uh, in the harsh light of day in a ruthlessly objective fashion. Uh, And I think, you know, in talking, and and I've had a number of conversations Larry, over the last several days with former 9-11 commissioners, People like Lee Hamilton, uh, people who wrote the legislation that established the 9/11 Commission, um, as well like Tim uh, Romer of Indiana, and the the key thing in making that commission so effective was there was a constituency of 9/11 victims that came together and demanded answers and demanded. That uh, a, a very objective report on why their loved ones lost their lives and what could be done to protect the country in the future. I think that's exactly what's going to happen here, as the victims of this virus and our healthcare workers on the front line band together to demand answers, uh, and and do so with an eye to protecting the country going forward. So the states are better prepared, the federal government is better prepared. The uh, whole of government uh, places a much higher priority on threats like this that are so cross-cutting.
0: What's the timeline um, back to the SBA assistance? And uh, I have another listener, Holly in Long Beach, who says she has a small business account with Wells Fargo, but hasn't been able to apply for the Paycheck Protection Program. So these things where people are hitting bottlenecks with SBA, with Wells, with other, you know how long is this going to take for people to be able to to get what they need?
8: Well,
7: so far it has been very case-specific in terms of who has been able to get access through the SBA website, which I understand crashed at some point today, Um, which uh, small businesses have relationships with their bank already, uh, in which case their local bank is already pursuing the Paycheck Protection uh, Program. Uh, In terms of Wells Fargo, after hearing from small businesses that were customers of Wells Fargo, uh, I joined uh, forces with a couple of my colleagues to weigh in uh, with the Fed uh, to seek relief, and that was granted today. So your listener that uh, is a customer of Wells Fargo uh, and was told by Wells Fargo basically that we, we are capped, we can't do anything to help more than so many businesses. Uh, for the purposes of this program, those caps have effectively been lifted uh, and uh, or loans under the PPP program won't count against Wells Fargo's caps, so there should be relief now for Wells Fargo customers, um, but we're also exploring um, when, when, ba- when businesses have to go to banks other than their own, uh, creating some kind of a safe harbor where if other banks lend under the PPP program and they make sure that they uh, do a certain uh, specified due diligence that they will have a safe harbor that would probably facilitate this money going out uh, more quickly.
0: Congressman, thank you for being with us. As always, we appreciate it, and we uh, wish safety to you and your family, and uh, and hopefully um, all of us be able to get back to in-person work in the not-too-distant future.
7: Uh, to you and to your listeners as well. Thank you, Larry.
0: Congressman Adam Schiff joining us. He represents a swath of Southern California across Glendale, Burbank, Pasadena, and Los Angeles. Coming up, we'll talk about the University of California system. How is it going to determine admissions without uh, students being able to take the SAT test, uh, with grades not necessarily being as meaningful as in the past, with students moved to online learning? We'll talk about that process in just one minute. It's air talk on 89.3 KPCC. Coming up at the end of the hour, we're going to listen to another one of the great songs of singer-songwriter John Prine, so influential, who died of complications of COVID-19 yesterday at the age of 73. We also received word that Alan Garfield, uh, the character actor in so many great films of the 70s, like The Conversation and Nashville, He died of complications from COVID-19. He died yesterday. Uh, He had been a resident at the Motion Picture Television Fund home in Woodland Hills. Uh, He was 80 years of age, uh, originally from Newark, New Jersey, and in so many uh, television series, West Wing, uh, but a lot of big films of the 1970s. Uh, Woody Allen's Bananas, Billy Wilder's The Front Page, William Friedkin's The Brinks Job, Richard Rush's The Stunt Man, worked with Francis Ford Coppola, uh, just a a tremendous uh, character actor, Alan Garfield, uh, dying of complications of COVID-19 at the age of 80. University of California is suspending the requirement for SAT test scores as well as for uh, minimum grade requirements for consideration for the upcoming freshman class at UC. Joining us to talk about how they are going to vet students uh, without having those measures is Eddie Como, professor of higher education at UC Riverside. He chairs the Academic Senate Committee that oversees undergrad admission policies for the UC system. Uh, thank you so much, Professor Como, for being with us on AirTalk. So what are some of the ways that uh, you and your colleagues are going to go through this process?
8: Yeah, so there, there is a, a temporary waiver of certain admission requirements uh, to UC due to the ongoing COVID-19 crisis. And so, you know, as you think about certain requirements that are used uh, in, in each admission decisions. Um, it's just uh, a matter of thinking about this as sort of an additive factor when, when we're now moving to uh, test optional uh, for the 21, uh, 2021 admission cycle. And so uh, there needs to be adequate training among the reader pool to ensure that, you know, if students submit scores or do not submit uh, test scores that, you know, one, we'll look at this within context, but also aware that, you know, this is not uh, something that is traditionally um, uh, accounted for uh, for this admission uh, cycle.
0: How much are you going, uh, weight are you going to give grades, particularly the last semester of the senior year?
8: Right. So um, that's that's another requirement um, that we also Um, have a temporary waiver because some schools may move to pass no pass and uh, as you know with say for example the A through G requirements you need a C or better uh, uh, in those courses and so um, there needs to be certainly a uniformity in terms of how uh, admission decisions are being made and so uh, most of our campuses UC campuses use holistic review and so they're looking at um, all of these factors within context, uh, you know, values aren't placed specifically on, on these factors. And so to think about them holistically uh, is, is the right approach and something that, of course, the uh, readers are trained to do.
0: Now, you don't have the requirement for the SAT scores, but that wouldn't keep you from looking at, at scores for those who submit them, correct?
8: Absolutely. And so, again, the readers are trained to think about Ah, uh, test scores that are submitted uh, for the 21 admission cycle as an additive factor, right? So you can't you cannot be penalized if you do not submit test scores for this upcoming admission cycles. And so they are trained to think about um, if if scores are submitted, and conceivably those who submit scores are likely uh, submitting scores that are that tend to be higher, right? And so uh, as a reader, uh, you have to determine. Uh, within context, uh, the whole file, how that might add to uh, a particular profile.
0: We're talking with Eddie Como, the professor of UC Riverside, professor of higher ed. He chairs the Academic Senate Committee overseeing undergrad admissions policies. Also with us is chair of the UC Board of Regents, speaker emeritus of the California Assembly, John A. Perez. Mr. Perez, good to have you with us again on AirTalk. It's been uh, quite a while, I think, since you've been on the program. And this may be your first visit since uh, uh, being the chair of the UC Board of of Regents. Uh, How do you see the task uh, for those reviewing applications and the challenges here?
9: First of all, thanks for having me back, Larry. Wonderful to chat with you and always great to hear you. Uh, Look, these these are important questions that we're looking at. We want to make sure that we look at students equitably. And as the professor said, it's consistent with what we do in holistic review. We have nine undergraduate campuses, six of them use a pretty consistent holistic review where grades and test scores are only amongst a few elements. There's over 15 other elements that are used in evaluating students. There are a couple of campuses that have slightly different, uh, different standards as UC Riverside, his home campus does. What we wanted to do is make sure that we lessen stress on students and their families and created the most equitable system. I wanna differentiate, if I may, between students who've already been admitted to this fall Versus students who will be applying in the future because there are two different sets of questions for students who've already been admitted the the difference that we've made is saying we will not hold pass not pass in the final semester of senior year against them and that we will not hold any technical difficulties in their schools providing their transcripts against them so that the students we already admitted have the ability to decide uh, which campus to come to and then they can make that decision fear of any of these COVID-related issues impacting their enrollment. For students that are currently juniors, uh, we've carried over the same question for this semester, making sure that pass, not pass, wouldn't count against their GPA for consideration when they apply next year. And those are the students for whom we've waived the SAT requirement. This was the result of a coordinated effort between admissions departments on campuses, the committee that uh, Professor Komu uh, chairs, and then ultimately was a decision that I had to sign off on with the president of the university and with the chair of our academic committee. Because at the end of the day, everything else is advisory. The regents have to make the final decisions. But we're confident that across our system, uh, we'll be able to evaluate students and hold, hold them harmless uh, for these COVID-related concerns that uh, were not of their
0: own making. We're talking with the chair of the UC Board of Regents. Uh, He was for a number of years the speaker of the California Assembly, John A. Perez, also Eddie Como, UC Riverside professor of higher education. He's the chair of the Academic Senate Committee uh, boards that oversees undergraduate admission policies and practices throughout the UC system. Linda in Pasadena has a question and I don't know, uh, Mr. Perez, whether you'd be able to answer this, but wondering with the waiving of the SAT requirement, is UC considering a waiving of the GRE, the Graduate Record Exam, for grad school applicants?
9: We have not yet made a decision on that. That is really uh, much more nuanced. Uh, UC undergraduate admissions are a single standard across all nine campuses in terms of what it takes to be eligible. The, the the graduate admissions is much more campus based than program based uh but it is something that we'll take up considering uh, with uh, with our provosts on our respective campuses, uh, but no action has been taken along those lines yet.
0: And is there any anticipation that um, not including SAT scores or minimum grade requirements will delay the selection of um, admissions for uh, the following academic year?
9: So first, again, we're not we're not waiving uh, GPA requirements. We're saying that we're not going to hold one semester of pass-fail
0: pass, uh, yeah.
9: against somebody. Uh, so we still look at the totality of the rest of their A through G requirements. We do not believe that this will slow us down. We have incredibly thoughtful faculty and administrators on all of our campuses and people that read each individual file, as Professor Como talked about, and they'll be trained to be able to make decisions using the totality of the factors that we use in comprehensive review to make the decisions we need. Uh, we're, 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 we're absolutely committed to moving on the normal timeline.
0: Very good. Thank you so much, Mr. Perez. Good to talk with you. We appreciate it. Thank you, Professor Como, as well, for joining us on AirTalk as we look at the application and review process for admissions to the University of California. Coming up on AirTalk, uh, we're going to uh, consider uh, the advice that was given yesterday by the Director of Public Health for Los Angeles County, Dr. Barbara Ferrer. She said that it's wholly appropriate for family members to consider removing uh, older family members from skilled nursing facilities. So my question for you as an AirTalk listener is, are you someone who is in that position? You're considering that. Obviously, you have to consider whether you have the means and and the physical layout in your home or elsewhere to care for that older family member, if that's even an option. We're at 866-893-KPECC. That's 866 866-893- 893 35722 will be back in just 90 seconds. You're listening to Talk on 89.3 KPCC. So good to have you with us today. We always appreciate not just your listening, but the many ways you're providing moral support for KPCC. Thank you very, very much. In case you missed it last hour, Randy Newman, singer, songwriter, film composer, multi-major award winner, He wrote a special song just for KPCC uh, to remind listeners to stay home, wash your hands, don't touch your face, and uh, you'll be hearing a lot of that, I'm sure, nationally already. Rolling Stone uh, has picked up the story, as have other publications. Uh, In case you missed it, you have fun. You'll hear it a lot, I'm sure, uh, here on KPCC. Yesterday, in her daily news conference, the director of public health for Los Angeles County, Barbara Ferrer, said it was wholly appropriate to consider removing an aging family member from a skilled nursing facility out of concerns that some of those facilities have seen a fairly dramatic spread of COVID-19, even with the edict that no visitors, no family members are allowed to come through the doors. But of course, if you get one a healthcare worker in a skilled nursing facility who's ill, it's very easy for her or him to end up passing that on to the residents of that facility. My question for you is, if you have an older family member who is either in a skilled nursing facility or even in an assisted living facility because the issue could be similar there too maybe it's a graduated facility that has a portion of it given over to uh, small apartment units for those getting some assistance and then for uh, skilled nursing rooms for those who require additional care. If you have a family member in assisted living or skilled nursing and you are considering moving that family member home or somewhere else, uh, or you simply can't because of limitations at your house or their home, I'd like to hear your thought process. We're at 866-893-KPECC. That's 866-893-5722, or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Joining me is Professor of Gerontology, Medicine, and Biology at the University of Southern California, Dr. Edward Schneider. He is also a member of the Board of Directors for the Los Angeles Jewish Home for the Aging. Dr. Schneider, thank you, sir, for being with us today.
10: Thank you for inviting
0: me, Larry. Um, When I heard this, um, maybe recommendation is too strong, but at least Dr. Ferrer opening up the door to this, my thought is, gosh, how many family members are going to have the capacity to provide uh, a skilled nursing facility level of care in the home? This would seem to be much easier said than done.
10: That's right, Larry. This is a scary time, and I think she scared an awful lot of people. I think you better think twice before you bring your loved one home. And I can give you some examples why, if you'd like. Yes, please. Okay, let's give you an example. A nursing home has 24-7 nursing care. So if your loved one is there and a care worker comes along and sees your loved one coughing or not acting the usual way, in other words, she has or he has a change of condition, they'll report it to the nurse. They have 24-7 nursing. The nurse can then evaluate your loved one, and decide whether they should or should not go to the hospital. You can't do that at home unless you have a trained nurse in your home. Who's going to evaluate your loved one? Who's going to make that decision? That's just one example of many reasons you have to think twice before you bring your loved one home.
0: And, uh, I mean, the other factor is that for some frail uh, elderly residents, uh, there will be issues of mental confusion. There can be concern about just the, the stress of making a move out of the facility. Isn't that something in some cases to consider? There
10: are many things to consider. That, you hit the nail on the head, Larry. When someone has dementia and they change their location, it's very, very disrupting to their life.
0: All right. Again, 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Now, how far can family members go in uh, pressing uh, staff members at skilled nursing facilities or even assisted living um, to make sure that they are observing all of the necessary protocols to um, to make sure that COVID-19 isn't spread?
10: Well, I think that. A family member can ask the staff of a facility, what are they doing? What specifically are they doing to prevent the spread of COVID-19? At the Jewish home, I think we've done a spectacularly good job. We have uh, 600 nursing home residents. We have hundreds of other assisted living facility residents. And I think we've done a great job. Other facilities have not. You saw what happened in the state of Washington at Kirkland and what's happening here in Los Angeles at Kensington. So it depends on the facility. You have a good facility, you have a, your loved one is safe if you don't they may be
0: in danger. There's a facility in Riverside we were talking about earlier today, uh, which was closed because um, the staff did not show up for the last couple days. So they're moving 84 patients out of Magnolia Rehabilitation and Nursing Center in Riverside. I mean, that's a huge move. Eighty-four people who are essentially bedridden, that after five employees and 34 residents at the 90-bed facility were found. Uh, to be uh, COVID-19 positive. And is something like that, a spread like that, could that be attributable to even a single employee not following best practices?
10: It could. It could also be the screening of employees. When employees show up at the Jewish home, for example, we take their temperature. And we do a history. We try to find out if they've had any coughing, if they feel ill, if they've changed in their behavior. So it depends on the facility whether they're doing the right screening or not.
0: All right, 866-893-KPECC, a chance for you to ask gerontologist, physician Dr. Edward Schneider uh, questions about whether it makes sense to bring home an aging family member who is in a, a facility where they're receiving care, 866-893-KPECC, or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. And in Los Filos says, I know someone who moved an elderly father into his own condo instead of in with the family. Uh, but some people living in that condo complex were COVID-19 positive, where would you move someone uh, if you could not move that individual in with the family?
10: Wow, that is a really difficult question, Larry. I'm not sure I can come up with a good answer for that
0: one. Uh, I mean, to me, it would the level of care required is such a huge factor here because... Um, you not only have the issue of can you afford some degree of home care, either in your family member's own home, if they're moving back there or staying there, or in your home, but then how do you properly screen the person or persons who are providing that care to make sure that they're not bringing COVID-19 into the home? Dr. Schneider, any suggestions on that?
10: No, that's a great comment, Larry. You've covered it. It's very, very difficult to screen people if you don't have the experience in doing that. So I think it's, uh, if you had a person, you had a loved one in a nursing facility and you were confident in the quality of that facility, I'd leave them there. I wouldn't take them out.
0: All right. Even with the higher risk of COVID 19 by staying there. Yeah. Well,
10: let me give you an example of the risk you have of taking that person home. Half the patients in nursing homes have dementia. You take your loved one home with dementia. And you turn around and they walk out the front door because people with dementia wander. And they're off wandering around the neighborhood uh, and they're being exposed. So, again, uh, it's not so easy to take someone home with dementia from a nursing home.
0: All right. Mitch in West Los Angeles says, I think if people were to take loved ones home, even with the best of intentions, they'd be much more likely to be calling paramedics. There's a certain amount of nursing that can take place in those facilities. So you're going to have people not getting that care, then coming into the hospitals and crowding the ER. That's a really good point that Mitch raises. Dr. Schneider?
10: Um, I spoke to that earlier. Mitch is absolutely right. Uh, The average person cannot evaluate whether a person should go to the emergency room or not. But in a nursing home, that's what the nurses are trained to do.
0: 866893kpecc or the airtalk page kpecc.org julie writes on the page my mother-in-law spent the last months of her life in a skilled nursing facility and there's no way my husband and i could have provided that level of care 24/7 attentive care by skilled experienced physically strong nurses providing iv fluids medication oxygen etc 866893kpecc or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. You mentioned the precautions that the uh, Los Angeles Jewish Home for the Aging is taking. You're on the board there. Uh, Can you share some of the protocols that the Jewish home is using?
10: Well, first of all, obviously no visitors. Second, no new admissions. Third, when any employee shows up for work, we take their temperature and we interview them to see if they've had any exposure, if they have any symptoms. If... A patient A patient has COVID-19, we isolate them and quarantine them.
0: And then does that mean that there's just a specific smaller number of staff members who provide a care to the person who's quarantined? Or is the whole staff potentially at some point going in and out of that room?
10: Uh, if we have a patient with COVID-19, and I want to make it clear, the only patient we ever had with COVID-19 came to us from a hospital. It was a resident who went to the hospital without COVID-19 and brought the wonderful disease back.
0: Okay. That was when you were accepting new admits?
10: No, no. It was a resident who already lived. Oh,
0: oh, I see. Went to the hospital, then came back.
10: Okay. Brought back this wonderful present to us. So then we had to isolate that person in a special area of the hospital and have everybody gown up and wear masks and do everything we could to prevent the spread to other residents in the facility. So
0: the entire staff then had to um, be prepared to deal with that single resident
10: the staff that took care of that resident
0: yeah yeah oh okay so just the ones that so the, the, i guess that's what i was getting at was their designated staff to deal with that resident they gowned up they went through the the more significant protections
10: correct Absolutely
0: right, Larry. 866-893-KPECC or the Airtalk page, kpecc.org. As we continue with Dr. Schneider, we'll also talk about those who are already caring for aging family members at home. They're not in a skilled nursing facility. So what are some of the extra precautions they need to keep in mind as well? It's 866 893 We'll be back in one minute on Airtalk. you're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us with professor of gerontology, medicine and biology from the University of Southern California, Dr. Edward Schneider. He's also a member of the board of directors of the Los Angeles Jewish Home for the aging uh dr schneider just as an aside tonight's the first night of passover and do you know what the jewish home is going to be doing uh for its seder tonight as a result of this
10: i actually don't i'm sorry i don't know what they're doing but i'm sure if they do anything it's going to be with distancing and with the appropriate precautions
0: i would bet what are you doing tonight
10: i have wonderful children who i'm 80 years old larry so uh, my children have made sure that I've isolated in quarantine. So we're having Passover with them on one side of a of a wall, glass wall of my house, and me and my wife on the other side of the wall, and we'll be celebrating it together, but yet socially distancing.
0: That sounds great, and we wish you all the best with that family seder this evening. Let's talk with Catherine in Glendale. You're on air. Talk.
3: Hi, um, my dad is in uh, memory care and. He's part of a larger assisted living facility, and they just reported yesterday that they had one case of COVID in the facility, don't know where exactly, um, and that it's safe and that he's been, uh, that the person has been removed and that they've checked it all out and they feel it's safe. We could move my dad out, but my brother works for the airlines, and so he, if moving him into his house would be the only option, and that seems risky as well. So we're trying to figure out what to do.
0: Yeah. And I'm sorry, is this your mother or your father? My dad. Your dad. Okay. All right. Um, so, uh, Dr. Schneider, your thoughts about that?
10: Oh, that's a tough decision. Uh, I would. It depends on the facility. If they have one individual and they've done what the Jewish home did, isolated them, quarantined them, had special staff taking care of them, screened the other staff at the facility, I think it might be safe to leave them there. But if you don't have trust in that facility, uh, then you should think about how to take care of your father. Taking him to your brother's home sounds very risky to me. All right. The other he, question to ask you is, what are the medical conditions your dad has?
0: So so he has dementia, Catherine? Any other um, uh, physical limitations?
3: Uh, he's, no, not really.
0: Okay. All right. Catherine, uh, we wish you all the best with what's obviously a difficult decision. Let's talk with Brian in Oxnard. Brian, I understand you're a paramedic. Your thoughts on this?
4: Yeah, Larry. So, you know, on a normal day to day basis, if without the covid virus, you know, we're going to people's homes all the time for for families taking care of their loved ones instead of putting them in a nursing home. And uh, to be frank, you know, the quality of care is, is suboptimal. Um now, add on top of that the, the COVID virus and um, all the different things that go along with maintaining cleanliness, hygiene, cleaning out catheters, etc. Um, that the people at these nursing homes, even if it's not the best, it's better than what people can provide at their home. So I, I foresee if people start taking their family members home that you'll see a surge in 911 calls. Um, because, like you guys have mentioned, people aren't as familiar with the medical protocol, so their last-ditch effort is to call 911. You bring in these paramedics that we do our best to to keep our masks on and our gloves on, but at the same time, we are, you know, a high-risk carrier for these diseases—not only COVID, but every other thing. So, very good point. Um, Limiting our exposure to your loved ones unless it's a critical emergency is is paramount, I believe, to maintaining safety for your family members.
0: Brian, thank you so much for sharing your professional expertise as a paramedic on that. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it, Dr. Schneider?
10: Brian, it was a great comment. I'm glad you said that and reinforced what we've been talking about.
0: All right. Very good. If you have a family member who's in assisted living, so they're getting some degree, you know, they're having meals provided, but they're able to go to the dining room and take meals, and and they're living primarily independently. Would you, in a case like that, Dr. Schneider, consider bringing uh, your mom or dad home?
10: Again, not if it's a reasonably good facility. Um, it, It depends what's happening. Look, if I had someone in the facility at Kirkland where there's a breakout of coronavirus, of course I would bring my loved one home and try to isolate them and quarantine them. But if the facility is doing a good job, they're taking care of their staff, making sure their staff are screened, I think it's a safe place to be.
0: All right. Uh, Tammy tweets at Airtalk, there's no way I would bring my family member home from a uh, nursing home. The bathroom isn't set up for a wheelchair or toilet transfer. Sure. Medicines and health issues are numerous. Regular blood sugar check, all that on top of work. That's Tammy tweeting at Airtalk. Dr. Snyder, for those who are already providing some degree of care at home for an aging family member, um, Anything that maybe I mean, we, we understand the sort of basics of, um, you know, uh, covering the face and gloves and things like that. Anything that might be less well-known to consider?
10: Well, I would make sure they have their medications. Make sure that not only do they have their current medications, but they have what's called a vacation supply, at least additional 30-day supply so that they don't run out of their medications.
0: All right. Uh, and real quickly, Mark and Costa Mesa, quick question.
5: Yeah, um, Dr. Snyder, uh, I know that the Jewish facility is a good facility. My mom's in um, uh, assisted living with dementia care, and I have the wherewithal to take her onto my property and uh, put her into a travel trailer because I don't have a lot of um, confidence in the facility that she's in. But my question is, I work. I'm... I work outside primarily, so I'm still going in my job. Could I rely upon or find a reliable service that could provide some, uh,
10: you know, at
0: Yeah, care in the trailer. Dr. Schneider, real quickly, please. Yeah.
10: I think you'd have to be sure to be able to find an in-home care that would provide the services you need and do it well.
0: And do you know what the state of that? Are they, Are they being particularly uh, hammered right now because of COVID-19, those those uh, facilities? They're being
10: hammered. You mean the services?
0: Yeah, having enough people to do the jobs. Yeah, would think that would be challenging.
10: A lot of the caregivers don't want to work.
0: Yeah. Dr. Schneider, thank you so much. We appreciate it very much. Dr. Edward Schneider, professor of gerontology, medicine, and biology at USC. He's a member of the board of directors of the Los Angeles Jewish Home for the Aging. Well, as we talked about earlier today, the music of singer-songwriter John Prine continues to be a huge influence on his successor artists. Prine died yesterday in Nashville of complications of COVID. COVID-19. He was 73 years of age and I thought it appropriate. One of his most acclaimed songs was about an old couple living alone titled Hello in There.
11: stroll lonesome Waiting for someone to say Hello in there So if you're walking down the street sometime Spot some hollow ancient eyes Don't just pass them by and stare as if you didn't care. Say hello in there.
0: We remember John Prine on Air Talk on KPCC. Have a good day.